According to the Daily Beast today, first daughter Ivanka Trump secretly met with Planned Parenthood President Cecile Richards in January. The story does not make clear whether the meeting took place before or after Trump's inauguration, but Ivanka is Trump's most trusted advisor along with her husband, Jared Kushner, and she's a moving force behind much of the action in his administration. According to the Daily Beast, quote, the purpose of the meeting from Cecile's point of view was to make sure that Ivanka fully understood what Planned Parenthood does, how it is funded, and why it would be a terrible idea for Planned Parenthood to be removed from being able to see Medicaid patients, said Don Lugans, an executive vice president of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. The main thing that Cecile was doing was explaining that the money doesn't actually go to abortions. We get reimbursed the same way a hospital does. We are clearing up misinformation about how this works, unquote. Richards now says that Ivanka is part of the problem since she hasn't openly sounded off on her father's opposition to funding Planned Parenthood. According to Richards, quote, anyone who works in this White House is responsible for addressing why women are in the crosshairs of basically every single policy we've seen in this administration. It's worth noting that just yesterday, Ivanka told Gail King on CBS This Morning that she sounds off against her father's policies all the time, behind closed doors. Quote, I would say not to conflate lack of public denouncement with silence, she explained. So, is Ivanka still stumping for Planned Parenthood behind closed doors? Trump has made clear he's willing to use Planned Parenthood as a cudgel to motivate Republicans, but he also spent months talking about all the non-abortion great work Planned Parenthood does, which accounts for a minute fraction of their revenue. Trump may have shifted his position for politics, but Ivanka probably hasn't. She's a career leftist on a variety of issues, from climate change to abortion to same-sex marriage. Her speech at the Republican National Convention was an ode to government-sponsored child care. As Stephen Miller of Heat Street pointed out, quote, Ivanka has donated thousands of dollars to prominent Democrat candidates, including Harry Reid, Andrew Cuomo, Eleanor Holmes Norton, Kirsten Gillibrand, Gavin Newsom, Chuck Schumer, Cory Booker, Elliot Spitzer, Hillary Clinton's Senate, and 2008 presidential campaign, and just recently to New Democrat star Senator Kamala Harris. In the interest of fairness, she did donate to McCain and Romney 2012, but according to sources, contributions to Republicans make up less than 10% of her overall donations. Ivanka was not even able to vote for her father in the GOP primary, as she did not switch her party affiliation by the deadline. Ivanka is the person closest to Trump's heart in this administration. An administration filled with people with little political background but who compete to demonstrate their loyalty to the president. Ivanka will not be trumped in this regard. That means she may have her father's ear even on issues upon which they disagree. And that is not a good thing. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. So today's an extremely busy news day. We're going to get to get, uh, to Nunez. Devin Nunez has now been uh, recused. He's recused himself from the Russia investigation on the House Intelligence Committee. We'll tell you what that means. Steve Bannon is out at the National Security Council. So a lot of turmoil happening inside the, the Republican caucus. Plus, President Trump is making open overtures now to the left, which is not a good thing. But before we get there, we have to say, and we should say, obviously, thank you to our advertisers over at Lyft. So... If you are looking for a ride-sharing company that's going to make sure that you're safe and that you ride in a clean car and the driver isn't a creeper, Lyft is the place for you. I know because I use Lyft. My wife uses Lyft. My wife comes home very late at night from the uh, from the, her, her job in residency. She's a, she's a doctor. And, uh, and sometimes it's very late at night and she's very tired and I don't want her driving when she's super tired. So she takes Lyft. My wife is a young, attractive woman, and the only people I trust to take her home, the only people she trusts to take her home, are the folks over at Lyft. Safety is their number one priority. Every single driver is fully vetted through a 10-point safety standard, including third-party criminal and DMV background checks, and every car on the road has to pass a 19-point vehicle inspection, so you're not going to get somebody pulling up in a clunker that looks like it is directly out of escape from New York. So it is a great company. You can check them out over at Lyft, uh, and when you download the app, make sure that in the payment section, use the promo code Shapiro, and that will give you three free rides up to $10 each 
for new customers up to a $30 value when you enter that promo code Shapiro. Uh, so make sure you download it and you enter that promo code Shapiro. You download the free Lyft app, enter that promo code, my last name in the payment section, promo code Shapiro. And make sure you use that promo code not only so you get the three free rides up to $10 each for new customers, but also so that they know that we sent you. Okay, so the big news of the day is that Devin Nunez, who's, or Devin Nunes, I guess it's pronounced, there's been a big debate in political circles. How do you pronounce this guy's last name? Uh, so Nunes, I think, is how it's actually pronounced. Uh, Devin Nunes, who is the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, he announced on Thursday he has recused himself from the committee's investigation into Russia's alleged meddling in the 2016 election. Now, this poses a problem for the Trump administration because the Trump administration basically funneled all of the information about Susan Rice unmasking members of the Trump team and the Trump transition team. They funneled all that to Nunes by bringing him to the White House, and then he didn't update his House Intelligence Committee friends and foes, and then he went back to the White House to update Trump. So it looked like Nunes was working for Trump. That was really what this came down to. The reason that he is is recusing himself is because the House Ethics Committee has now put him under investigation. Now, to be clear, they're not investigating him because they're saying he's a tool of the White House. They're investigating him because anytime somebody allegedly leaks classified information, they are, uh, they, they are investigated by law. Nunes has explained in a statement that um, he is, is not He's not recusing himself because he did anything wrong. He says, several left-wing activist groups have filed accusations against me with the Office of Congressional Ethics. The charges are entirely false and politically motivated and are being leveled just as the American people are beginning to learn the truth about the improper unmasking of the identities of U.S. citizens and other abuses of power. Despite the baselessness of the charges, I believe it is in the best interest of the House Intelligence Committee and the Congress for me to have Representative Mike Conway, with assistance from Representatives Trey Gowdy and Tom Rooney, temporarily take charge of committee's Russia investigation while the House House Ethics Committee looks into the matter. I will continue to fulfill all my other responsibilities as committee chairman. Um, and uh, the, the ranking Republican and Democratic members of the Ethics Committee issued a statement. They said, the committee is aware of public allegations that Representative Devin Nunes may have made unauthorized disclosures of classified information in violation of House rules, law, regulations, and other standards of conduct. The committee, pursuant to Rule 18A, is investigating and gathering more information regarding these allegations. So all of the leading Republicans from Trump to Ryan have expressed confidence in Nunes. What's amazing about about all of this is that I actually think Nunes is doing the right thing here. I said a while ago I thought that Nunes should recuse himself after there were questions about whether he was working for Trump, mainly because it overshadows the actual scandal here, which is Susan Rice unmasking Trump officials and then disseminating that information widely to the Obama team. Does it mean that Devin Nunes did something terribly wrong? No, it doesn't mean that Devin Nunes did something terribly wrong. The headlines are just not going to be good. The question here was basically, would it be better for Nunes to stick it out through the House Ethics Committee and muddy the waters, or would it be better for him to step aside and hand it over to people like Gowdy and Conaway and allow them to pursue the leaks investigation uh, about Susan Rice and Mike Flynn? Clearly, I think for Trump, it is better for Nunes to take the bullet on this one and step to the side. So I think that Devin Nunes did make the right call here. Don't pay attention to everybody who's saying this is obvious proof that he did something deeply wrong. That's not right. The House rules command. It's not even it's not even a, just a possibility. It's an actual command. The House rules say that if there is an allegation brought against you of leaking classified information, they must investigate. They have to investigate and they have to open an inquiry by law. So it's not like they found something credible and then went after Nunes. They were forced to by the rules of the committee. So 
don't pay attention. It's, it's a bit of a nothing burger. Don't pay attention to everybody who's making a huge deal out of noon stepping away, not proof that he did anything wrong or that he was specifically working for Trump. I thought that he, he should not. Uh, my, my feeling was that after he went to the White House and learned all this stuff, he should have updated the members of the House Intelligence Committee before running back to Trump to report. It was that second trip to the White House that looked particularly bad. And, uh, and I wish he hadn't done that, but I don't know that he actually did anything wrong here, and I think it's premature to say that he did. Okay, in other news that surrounds, uh, surrounds Trump, Trump has done an interview with the New York Times, and in this interview with the New York Times, he is now saying that he wants to do a great infrastructure plan. And on that side, I will say, we're going to have, I believe, tremendous Democrat support. So basically, he's looking for Democrat support for a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan. And there were questions about whether a lot of this money was going to come from public-private projects. So out here in Los Angeles, we have public-private projects at places like the Grove and the Americana. There's basically uh, a, lot of, a lot of stadiums are public-private projects, you know, places where people invest their private dollars, and those are matched by a certain amount of government money. Still not my favorite thing, but better than just pure public investment. Uh, Trump says he doesn't even want the public-private projects anymore because he can borrow money more easily, and he knows what to do with your money better than you know what to do with your money. He says, we may take that trillion, and we may also, in addition, use public-private, but we're talking about an investment of a trillion dollars. So he explicitly said that it's not going to be $200, $300 billion of public money and the rest private. It will be a trillion dollars of public money. And he said the reason for that is because he can borrow money so cheap. Well, this was exactly what Steve Bannon had been saying for a while was going to be Trump's plan. So the idea that, that Steve Bannon's influence with the administration is over, I don't think that's right. I also think that it's not just Bannon's idea. Donald Trump made his name in life building really big things with other people's money. That's what he's done his entire life, build really big things with other people's money. He's not going to stop doing that now that he has trillions of dollars at his disposal. And there are a lot of people on the right who seem okay with this sort of infrastructure spending. You weren't okay with it when it was Obama. And when Obama was spending $800 billion on random crap, it was bad. It was called a stimulus plan, and we said it's a waste of money. This also is a waste of money. The fact is that everybody talks about the interstate highway system as though it's going to cost a trillion dollars to fix up the interstate highway system. It doesn't cost a trillion dollars to fix up the interstate highway system. Plus, it is worthwhile noting that states and localities have an interest in maintaining the interstate highway system since it carries all sorts of goods and products and services through their towns. One of the great myths, by the way, of American politics is that the Eisenhower interstate highway system was some sort of magnificent creation that never would have happened if it hadn't been for the intervention of the federal government. It's just not true. People drove long before the 1950s. This was a car country going back to the 1920s. The interstate highway system cost a lot of money. It drove right through towns. It destroyed a lot of businesses. Uh, if you ever see the movie Cars, you know the, 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 the Pixar movie Cars, remember the, the whole movie is set in this little town called Radiator Springs, which is off of Route 66. And as you recall, Route 66 is basically abandoned. Well, Route 66 used to be one of the thoroughfares of American commerce. Right? Nat King Cole had a whole song about get your kicks on Route 66. Route 66 was an actual thing. What happened is that the federal government built the I-40. The I-40 bypassed Route 66. All of these people who'd spent their life savings and all their time and money putting routes down around Route 66, all of them were left behind and destroyed. So when you talk about forgotten people, there are a lot of people who were forgotten because of the interstate highway system or whose houses were completely bulldozed by the interstate highway system. The case I'm making is not there shouldn't be an interstate highway system. It's that states have an interest in connecting their state highway systems, and most of this should have been absorbed at the local and state level. So when people say we need lots of, we need lots of infrastructure spending now because it was so great back in the 50s, it wasn't that great back in the 50s. It isn't that great now. And when Trump does this routine, 
Queen, what he really wants is to build big, spectacular things. He doesn't actually want to fix up the roads and bridges that matter, per se. He just wants to build big stuff so that he can stamp the big T on it and then say that he built something, which is what a lot of these folks want to do. Obama wanted to do it. Uh, Obviously, FDR made his name doing this. It's not good policy. Uh, there's another poll, by the way, the, as long as I'm going to get all the bad Trump news out of the way at the beginning, there's, there's another poll that's out today uh, that says that 40% of Trump supporters would back a single-payer health care system, which just demonstrates what folks like me have been saying all along, the great damage that Trump could do, and he hasn't done it yet, but the great damage that it is possible for him to do is the soul-sucking of the Republican Party into a big government nationalist party as opposed to a small government patriotic party, which is not quite the same thing. Well, all of that said, the big story of the day uh, is, is, we'll get to the Republican chaos in a second, but the big story of the day is what is going to happen in Syria. So if you've been watching the pictures that are coming out of Syria, obviously they are horrifying. We, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. There, there are all these pictures of dead children who have been gassed to death by the Bashar Assad regime. And that comes just a few days after the Trump administration came out and said Assad would remain in power. I'd said that's not a coincidence. If it had happened under Obama, I would have said the exact same thing. I have a very simple standard when it comes to what I expect from my politicians, and that is, you know, your word matters and what you say has credibility. And it turns out that in foreign policy particularly, it matters when you say things. So the fact that Trump's people said Assad will stay in power and then three days later he's gassing children, I don't think that's any sort of major coincidence. Uh, A survivor of a 2013 Syria chemical attack, uh, he was on CNN and he was talking about what he thinks Trump should do. If I may just say a few words directly to President Trump, if you'll just give me the chance. Please. Mr. President, Mr. President, please, please, in the name of every woman and child and elder who got killed by the Assad regime, please come in and help us. Don't make the same mistakes that President Obama did. You criticized Obama for failing uh, to punish and act when Assad crossed the red lines. Now is the moment of truth. Now you should show the world that those days are over. We can't just keep living in this unprecedented crimes against humanity. We, we just can't keep living like this. I would personally love to come to the United States and meet you and tell you my personal story. You know, obviously the media is happy to put this sort of stuff on TV because they, they're saying, you know, Trump should do something. There, there are two questions here. One, whose fault is all of this? And two... Excuse me, what should President Trump do right now? Those are the two big questions. It's pretty clear that this is Obama's fault. It's pretty clear that this started under Obama, that it was Obama who was saying for years and years and years that we had disarmed the Assad regime. He proclaimed himself uh, a massive political genius for having drawn a red line, then backed away from the red line after Bashar Assad used chemical weapons against his own people. And then he said that he had disarmed Assad and left Assad in power while Assad continued to gas folks. John McCain correctly says this is Obama's legacy. He is obviously, as we all are, appalled. Could I make two points? One, this is a legacy of Barack Obama. The last time this happened, Barack Obama said they'd crossed a red line, called me and Lindsey Graham down to the White House, said we're going to, and did nothing. You know, one thing worse than doing nothing is saying you're going to do something as the most powerful leader on earth and, and doing nothing. So this is a legacy of Barack Obama, and it's been going on now for the intervening four years. So what we need to do, 
We need to stop Bashar Assad's planes from flying, and we can do that easily. You have been bringing this issue up to the forefront. I know it's been a great frustration um, for you. I got to go, but just very quickly, just are safe zones viable? I mention again, Barack Obama had an opportunity to, to stop this and would have long ago, and he took a hike, and that's a terrible legacy. Okay, and McCain is exactly right. And listen, McCain is no friend of Trump. So when he says this is on Obama, you can trust that Senator McCain is exactly right on this. This certainly is on Obama. But that doesn't answer what we should do now. I'm going to discuss that in just a second. But first, I want to say thank you to our advertisers over at CISO. So if you are obsessed with comedy or if you finish the news of the day and you just need a laugh, you need to go to CISO.com and use promo code BEN. This is the place for comedy. You can stream as much original comedy content as you want for $3.99 a month. They have all of the, the back episodes of SNL. They have all the back episodes of the British The Office and all the old episodes of Monty Python. It's, it's just the one-stop shop for all of the comedy that you're possibly going to need. My wife and I use CISO all the time. We have been subscribing, I believe, of our of our own volition at this point for several months because right now, if you go over to CISO.com, S-E-E-S-O, and you sign up with promo code Ben and check it, you get one month for free. So you can try it out, see if you like it. We signed it. We kept paying for it because we really like CISO. S-E-E-S-O.com. Right now, you sign up for one month for free, and as I say, they've got all the old episodes of the old comedies. Uh, they've got all the the old episodes of late night TV, including the new late night TV. And they have a bunch of new shows that are really funny. Uh, one of them that, that we tend to watch is uh, there's one called uh, Harmon Quest that's pretty funny. Um, it's uh, the guy who created Community, uh, which was one of our favorite shows when that was on TV. Uh, and it is basically a Dungeons and Dra- Dragons takeoff, Harmon Quest, uh, worth watching. Uh, and the, the and they, they have tons of comedy, so you're you're never going to go unentertained on a weeknight, a lot cheaper than a lot of the competing streaming services, obviously, and it has more comedy than all of them combined. So it's S-E-E-S-O dot com. It's the one-stop shop for comedy, CISO dot com, and use that promo code BEN. And again, they have all the stand-up from Fallon, and they have the stand-up from Louis C.K., who is... Louis C.K., you know, it's so funny. I disagree with Louis C.K. on everything politically, but he is so funny. He is so good. Uh, and uh, all of his specials are on CISO.com. So check that out, S-E-E-S-O.com. Use that promo code BEN so that they know that we sent you, and also so you get one month for free. So the question is, what exactly should the United States do in Syria now that we've seen all of these terrible images coming out of Syria? But for you to get the answer to that, you're going to have to actually subscribe to the show. So go to dailywire.com right now, and uh, you can get a subscription for $8 a month, uh, and uh, go over there and check it out. Uh, You can also get an annual subscription, and when you do that, you get a free signed copy of The Masterwork, Reasons to Vote Democrat, a Comprehensive Guide, the most thorough book on democratic thinking ever created by Michael Knowles. Huge bestseller. He just got a big contract from a book publisher picking it up, uh, which makes me sick to my stomach. Dailywire.com. To check that out, you become a subscriber uh, or an annual subscriber. If you become an annual subscriber, you still get a free signed copy. If you just want to listen to the rest of the show later, uh, then go over to iTunes or SoundCloud. By the way, I forgot. If you're a subscriber, then make sure that you subscribe now, because tomorrow is the mailbag, so if you have questions, we can answer all your life's questions in the mailbag, but only if you're a subscriber. If you just want to listen, iTunes or SoundCloud, leave us a review. We always appreciate it. We are the most popular conservative podcast in the nation. So the question really is what's going to happen in Syria now with the Trump administration, because this is a fly-by-night, seat-of-the-pants operation with regard to foreign policy. Basically, you have Nikki Haley, who's a traditional conservative. You have H.R. McMasters, who's a more realist conservative. And then you have Trump, who's a who knows. Right? Nobody knows where he is. and nobody like When people say that Trump was ripping Obama over his Syria policy years ago, he was actually ripping Obama for even getting involved in Syria years ago, saying we never should have drawn a red line, we never should have been involved. So 
presumably he wouldn't have stopped what was going on in Syria either from Obama. So the the application of the criticism that McCain is making to Obama, it still actually applies to, to Trump as well. So yesterday, Trump saw all these images, and this is sort of the danger of Trump. Because Trump doesn't have a coherent worldview, he tends to be very reactionary on his foreign policy. So does he have a strategy on Syria? Not really, because he doesn't have a strategy on Iran. And this is the thing no one wants to talk about. Iran is the sponsor state for Syria. It is also a client state. Syria is a client state of Russia. Trump has been very warm to Russia, but very cold to Iran. So now he's in this weirdly conflicted situation where he doesn't really want to be involved, but the two main forces that are supporting the Syrian regime are enemies of the United States, but one of those regimes he's actually friendly with. So it's this bizarre, nonsensical foreign policy. And so what ends up happening is that he doesn't have any policy, and then something bad happens, like you see a bunch of dead kids on TV, and suddenly everybody is clamoring for U.S. involvement, and Trump reacts exactly how you think somebody who's a neophyte would react. Instead of saying, I have a coherent policy, he basically says, this affected me deeply, and I will do something. The world is a mess. I inherited a mess. Whether it's the Middle East, whether it's North Korea, whether it's so many other things, whether it's in our country, horrible trade deals, I inherited a mess. We're going to fix it. Okay, and he doesn't say how he's going to fix it. He is correct, of course, that this is a mess, but we st- he's the president now, and it didn't cut a lot of weight with me when Obama would say, I inherited a mess from Bush. Every president says they inherited a mess from their predecessor. Usually they're right. That doesn't mean that they're not president. So what is Trump actually going to do about this? Trump then embraces the language that Obama used and jumps right onto the landmine that Obama jumped onto and that he told Obama not to jump onto years ago. Just quickly ask you if the chemical attack crosses a red line for you. Uh, it crossed the lines for me. When you kill innocent children, innocent babies, babies, little babies, with a chemical gas that is so lethal that people were shocked to hear what gas it was that crosses many, many lines beyond the red line, many, many lines. Thank you very much. And 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 then the follow-up was, so what are you going to do? And he said, I'll tell you about it later. And I said, well, okay, I guess, but there better be a later. Nikki Haley, who actually has thought about some of these things a little more, uh, she basically threatened action. I don't know that Trump approved this because she's been saying things for a while that Trump says the opposite of. But here's Nikki Haley over at the U.N. talking about Syria. When the United Nations consistently fails in its duty to act collectively, there are times in the life of states that we are compelled to take our own action. And uh, and the action that she's threatening is unclear. So here's what they should do. What they should do is they should establish a no-fly zone. We had a no-fly zone over Iraq for a decade. Uh, It helped prevent more gassing of the Kurds like we saw in the aftermath of the Gulf War. We should establish a no-fly zone. That means putting American jets in the air over Syria along with our allies to prevent the Russians and the, and the Iranians and the Syrians from taking up the airspace and gassing people. That would be the ideal. You set that up, and then you have to set up refugee camps or help fund refugee camps, which we are already doing, by the way, and which Trump actually favors. Now, one of the stupider things that I saw was somebody saying, you can't complain about the images of the dead Syrian kids if you don't want to let in refugees, if you, if you believe in Trump's travel ban. This is asinine. Okay, there are lots of other solutions other than letting everybody in who's unvetted to this particular problem. One of the points of setting up a no-fly zone is to prevent people from having to flee the country. One of the points of having a refugee system over there is to prevent people from having to flee to the West. This is, you know, people have compared this to sort of the treatment, the world's treatment of the Jews during the Holocaust. 
that is absolutely inaccurate. The world shut its borders to Jews all over the world. That is not the same thing as what's happening in Syria right now. There are 58 odd, more than that, I think, Muslim countries around the world who are fully capable of taking in Muslim citizens of Syria. The idea that the first option should be for them to go to Europe or to, or to the United States is just silly. One of the reasons Israel was established, not the only reason, obviously, but one of the reasons Israel was established is because there was no Jewish country to actually absorb refugees in times of crisis like World War II. And now there is, and that's a good thing. And the same thing holds true for for Muslim refugees in the Middle East. That's a really poor argument. Is there something Trump could do short of war? Yes. He's going to have to get harsher with the Russians. He's going to have to tell the Russians to back down, that this no-fly zone will be imposed, and that we're going to work together to destroy ISIS. Is he willing to do that? We're going to find out. We're going to find out. But, you know, this is the sort of thing where it's there. there's an easier solution than normal, but it does demonstrate how reactive Trump is. And this is what worries me about his personality, not the kind of silliness of Twitter. It is silly, and he has wasted months on, on tweeting silly things and then covering up for the silly tweets. But on foreign policy, the way presidents get themselves in trouble is they stick their toe in the water, an alligator bites it, and then they get into a war. That's basically what happens, is that, you know, Trump says something like Assad can stay, Assad gasses a bunch of kids, we set up a no-fly zone in response to that, an American jet gets shot down by the Syrians, and now we're at war with the, with the Assad regime. Right? I mean, you could see something like that happening very easily, and the original solution would have been to set up a no-fly zone without actually telling Assad that it was okay to gas children, uh, and then presumably he wouldn't have gassed children in an attempt to regain credibility. Uh, but that's not what happened. This is why words matter in foreign policy, and as much as people say we should take Trump seriously but not literally, the fact is on foreign policy, you're a fool if you don't take the president of the United States both seriously and literally if possible. Okay, with all that said... The Republican Party continues to be chaotic in its implementation. This should be a time where everybody's flying high with Trump, right? I mean, this is first 100 days. We're 75 days in. We've seen no major legislative accomplishments. So are the Republicans finally getting it together? Are the Republicans finally starting to put this thing together? No. Here's Mike Pence, the vice president, talking about what's going on with Obamacare. Well, first, let me say Republicans are united in our commitment to keep the promise we made to the American people years ago to repeal and replace Obamacare. And President Trump and I couldn't be more grateful with the determination uh, that the men and women serving in the Congress under the Republican banner are bringing to this effort. But uh, uh, clearly a few weeks back, uh, Congress wasn't quite ready uh, to take the first step to begin the end of Obamacare. But uh, uh, conversations have continued since then. I think I think we've made good progress and, and, and I've seen good faith on all sides. Okay, again, this is nonsense. It's not true. He says, we're not quite down in Obamacare, but we're getting there. No, they're not. And the reason they're not is because it turns out that half of the people in Congress are not actually in favor of repealing Obamacare. And if you think I'm exaggerating, here's Representative Patrick McHenry, Republican from North Carolina. He's the Republican House Chief Deputy Whip. Here's what he said. He said, quote, I was once in the individual marketplace. My family history is really bad. And then he said, If you continue to look at a cross-section of the conference, they have similar positions about similar provisions, pre-existing conditions, guarantee issue, and medical underwriting are components of that. And then he says, the core provisions here are really important protections. In other words, there is no will to repeal the core provisions of Obamacare, and we were all lied to for years by every Republican who said they wanted to repeal Obamacare, but actually wants to keep the central provisions. Obamacare is not going to be repealed because Republicans never wanted to do it. And 
two things are happening inside the Republican Party that are causing significant conflicts. One is the, the Trumpian danger, this nationalist, populist, big government leftist stuff that's now masquerading as Republicanism. That's one danger. But a second danger is power. Republicans now have power, and that means they have to enact the agenda they promised they were going to. They are not doing it, and it's exposing the rift for one and all. This is the real rift in the Republican Party pre-Trump. Trump has his own rift, but the real rift in the Republican Party pre-Trump was the Tea Party Caucus rift with the, with the establishment Republican elite. That rift continues to be present and is not being pa- papered over anytime soon. Paul Ryan says we can't even get going on tax reform. We don't even have the, the necessary votes for tax reform. We will need more time to do tax reform. The House has a plan, but the Senate doesn't quite have one yet. They're working on one. This White House hasn't nailed it down. So even the three entities don't, aren't on the same page. Okay, so this is amazing. Republicans run all three branches of government, the House, the Senate, and the the presidency, and uh, and they can't get it together. They can't get it together. And that's because there are significant ideological differences inside the Republican Party. Some of those can be negotiated away, but a lot of them can't. It would take a significant amount of presidential leadership to actually push this thing, but that does not look like it is forthcoming. Meanwhile, there's chaos inside the Trump administration. Steve Bannon, who is Trump's chief strategy advisor, he apparently threatened to quit the Trump team if he was if he was eliminated from the National Security Council. Uh, knowing Steve, that is something that Steve would say, and it was also something Steve would back down from because Steve is a bully and most bullies are cowards. Steve is the kind of guy who likes to bluster a lot, but if he if he threatens and then it doesn't actually work, then he backs down. So that's exactly what happened here, apparently. Apparently, he threatened to quit if he was kicked off the National Security Council. H.R. McMaster, who is the, the new National Security Advisor, didn't want Bannon there because he says he doesn't know anything. What the hell is Bannon doing here? And so Bannon was basically moved off the National Security Council. Uh, Bannon threatened to quit. He, he didn't quit, obviously. He's sticking around because... He is an obscure guy who has somehow found himself in a massive position of power. Is it a good thing he's not on the NSC? Yes, it's a good thing. It's more professional not to have a guy whose total foreign policy experience is his Navy experience from 30 years ago and then quasi-running Breitbart.com for a few years. You know, that is not significant foreign policy experience to lead the NSC. It's one thing if he wants to be one of Trump's advisors, obviously. It's another thing to be actually on what is a, a, a non-political council, which is what the, the NSC is supposed to be. So there's a lot of questions as to why Bannon was was kicked down a notch. One is that McMaster wanted him out, but Trump had to go along with it. I think the most plausible theory is the one that I said now a couple of months ago when, when Bannon was on the cover of Time magazine. I said the most significant danger to Steve Bannon was that cover. The worst thing that could happen to Steve Bannon as a Trump advisor was being on the cover of Time magazine because Trump needs to be the center of attention. He is an attention whore, and having anybody else who rivals that center of attention scares the crap out of him. He doesn't like it. Well, Fox News' John Roberts basically reported that yesterday. We are also told, though, that maybe the president wasn't particularly happy with the way that Bannon had been grabbing the limelight, and that may have also played into all of this. Melissa? John Roberts, thank you. Not a shock. Not a shock. So, you know, with all of that said... The Democrats are now understanding that the way to get to Trump is not by attacking his policies, because his policies are all over the place, and they like a lot of his policies, including infrastructure. He's now apparently talking about a carbon tax, which is something they would like. They understand that the way to get to Trump is to basically taunt him into doing silly things, is to basically ta- is to play on his ego. The biggest problem with Trump, aside from his viewpoint, which was not conservative, the biggest problem with Trump always was his temperament. It was always his character. And... A lot of people were hoping that he would grow into the job. We're 75 days in. He's not growing into the job. And virtually all of the chaos in the administration is directly attributable to Donald Trump's his, his vacillating temperamental character. I mean, he, he's just all over the place all the time. And governing by chaos is not a good strategy. 
when you have, I mean, the, the kind of surprise him strategy works when you don't own the other branches of government. But again, he has the House, he has the Senate. Right now is the time for strong leadership. Here's what I want. We're going to get it done. Let me explain all the policy details and let me explain how we're all going to get on the same page. That is not what Trump is doing. And so what the Democrats have realized is that what they should do is they should just irritate Trump into making mistakes. That Trump, in the, in the, in the parlance of tennis, Trump makes a lot of unforced errors. And if you just keep hitting the ball back over the net, then Trump will eventually make an unforced error. That's why Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader, he's now openly taunting Trump. On Donald Trump campaigned, one of the main issues he campaigned on was that China takes us out to lunch, stealing millions of American jobs, trillions of American dollars in wealth through unfair trade practices. And yet since Donald Trump has become president, when it comes to trade, his policies make America look like a 98-pound weakling. He has done virtually nothing. Okay, so this is him taunting Trump, and he knows that what this is going to make Trump do is be more militant with the Chinese regime, and that'll make the Chinese regime more militant with Trump, and then there'll be conflict and bad headlines for Trump. That's what Schumer knows, and Trump is very predictable in this way. You can provoke him into doing things. That is the democratic strategy. The reason that I'm criticizing Trump this way is because this is a massive opportunity. It's a massive opportunity for Republicans to do good, for Republicans to put in place conservative policies. That was the promise. The promise was that if people held their and voted for Trump. You know, I didn't, but there were, but Republicans obviously did. I mean, a record number of Republicans obviously did. That if they held their nose and they voted for Trump, then the end result would be a Mike Pence presidency, at least in terms of policy. So far, that's been true, except for when Trump gets involved. And the more that Trump's character gets involved in the presidency, the worse this is. And that actually accelerates over time. Obama's character became involved in his presidency more over time. The beginning of a presidency is when you have all of the public support to ram through all the changes you want. None of those changes are being rammed through. Republicans can't get it together, and that's because of a lack of leadership that starts at the top. Democrats know that. They're going to try and taunt Trump into making more mistakes, and he's got to, he's got to grow the self-control to actually stop this. Okay, uh, now I need to – I want to stop and say thank you to our sponsors over at My Patriot Supply. So – if the world feels unstable, I mean, Trump says he inherited a mess. He says that he inherited a mess with North Korea and with Iran and with Syria. He's exactly right. That heightens the risk for terrorism, obviously, living in a chaotic world. And that means that you should be prepared in case of emergency. You need a four-week emergency food supply for $99. Go to preparewithben.com, preparewithben.com, 888-803-1413. Listen, even if you're just worried about natural disaster, a tornado, an earthquake, and the government can't get to you, and the people have raided the, the stores of the grocery shelves, there's some sort of panic, you know, you just, it, it costs 99 bucks to basically make sure that your family is safe for a month. So make sure that you go over to preparewithben.com and get that four-week emergency food supply for just $99. Uh, people around the office have tasted it. They say that it's actually really, really good. Uh, so again, 888-803-1413, 888-803-1413, preparewithben.com. If you have a family, you, you, there's really no excuse for not going to preparewithben.com and, and spending 99 bucks to protect yourself for decades with a four-week emergency food supply because this stuff does last for a significant amount of time and make sure that you're never going to have to think about it again. You just store it in your garage and you never have to think about it again until the emergency when you think, boy, I'm glad I spent that 99 bucks to keep my family safe. Preparewithben.com, 888-803-1413, preparewithben.com. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things I hate. So, Things I like. We've been doing French literature this week. So there's a great play that's from 1897, I believe, written by a guy named Edmund Rostand. Uh, it's Cyrano de Bergerac. For people who've never seen Cyrano de Bergerac, it really is a, a very moving uh, play. Uh, it's, it's become 
part of the the canon. You, you've seen the you, you've seen it even if you haven't seen it. So if you've ever seen the 1987 movie Roxanne with Steve Martin, uh, it is a ripoff of Cyrano de Bergerac. It's an homage to it. It's an homage to it, I guess. Uh, so basically, the plot of Cyrano de Bergerac is that there's a, a very ugly guy with a, with a big nose who has a lot of flair and he's very popular around town. But he falls in love with this beautiful woman, and she doesn't know that he exists because he's ugly. And so there's a guy who's in his same regiment who also falls in love with this girl and is utterly inarticulate. So Cyrano starts writing these beautiful love letters on behalf of, of this guy to this girl, and she ends up marrying the guy. It's, it's a tragedy. It's not, it's not a happy play. It starts off more as a comedy uh, than a tragedy, but it starts off as comedy, ends as tragedy, but it's a really, really good play. Here's a little bit of uh, the, the... This is the ending. It basically, uh, it, it, I don't think it's giving anything away. I mean, spoiler alert from 120 years ago, um, but there's a, a movie in, from 1950 with Jose Farrar, who's a terrific actor, and uh, he's been he's been mortally wounded, basically. And now she is finally realizing that he's the one who who actually wrote the letters um, because the other guy barely could read the letters. And this and here's the guy who actually wrote them, um, you know, making love to her, essentially. Because today I die. Allowed. I know that it will be today, my own dearly beloved. And my heart still so heavy with love I have not told. And I shall die without telling you. No more shall my eyes drink the sight of you like wine. Never more with a look that is a kiss. Follow the sweet grace of you. How you read it, his letter. I remember now the way you have of pushing back a lock of hair with one hand from your forehead. And my heart cries out. His letter. Cries out and keeps crying. And you read it so. Farewell, my dear, my dearest. In a voice. My own heart's own, my own. So the letter that he's reading is is the, the her husband, the guy who she married. Uh, he's been killed in battle and he had written this, this the, he had had Cyrano write this letter back to her. Uh, so it's it's very moving. Uh, they made a comedy version of it because Americans can't stand tragedy. So we, they made a comedy version. At least modern Americans can't. So uh, they made a comedy version with Steve Martin, uh, in which Steve Martin basically plays a fireman with a big nose uh, who falls in love with um, what's the name of the actress in this? The gal from Splash. Uh, I, who she made a bunch of movies in the eighties. In any case, uh, he he falls in love with her. Um, Daryl Hannah, thank you. Uh, and uh, and he falls in love with her, and he uh, and but he can't express his love for her. So this is a scene where it kind of shows Cyrano's flair. Uh, this is the modern version, which just shows how vulgar and stupid modern film is compared to <laughs> film from 1950. Here's here is Steve Martin. Start with uh, obvious. Excuse me, is that your nose or did a bus park on your face? <laughs> Meteorological. Everybody take cover. She's going to blow. <laughs> Fashionable. You know, you could de-emphasize your nose if you wore something larger, like Wyoming. Oh. <laughs> Personal. Well, here we are. Just the three of us. <laughs> Punctual. All right, Delman, your nose was on time, but you were 15 minutes late. <laughs> Envious. Oh, I wish I were you. Gosh, to be able to smell your own ear. <laughs> 
this guy in this scene, he's making fun of this guy because the, the guy has insulted his nose and made some stupid remark about his nose. Uh, the guy ends up punching him in the nose, actually, at the end of the scene. Um, but the, the, it's not a bad movie. It's just not... It's not Cyrano, um, but the, the original Cyrano is great. Go watch the original version with Jose Ferrar. Uh, it's really moving, and it's really good. Okay, other things uh, that I like. So I thought this was hilarious. Somebody apparently took tape. I was at University of Florida earlier this week. Great event. We had like 1,000 people. There's like 850 people in the hall. There's a line outside, uh, and just a lot of fun. Uh, I did Tebow. I was at University of Florida, so I did Tebow. Um, but they, apparently, there, there were like 12 or 15 protesters outside, uh, and I loved how the, one of the headlines from the local newspaper was something like, hundreds gather to cheer protest Shapiro. It's like, no, there were, there were like 1,000 people there in my favor and 12 against. But that's how the media covers it, which is really funny. One of the people protesting was apparently a University of Florida professor who, wouldn't, who refused to be shown. Here's a little bit of the video. So I see you have a UFID. Are you your faculty here? No comment. Are you UF faculty here? No comment. Can we get your name? No. Linda. Linda. How's that? Um, so talk to us a little bit about your sign here. So my sign says, words matter, hate speech kills. What is hate speech? So hate speech is when you attack specific groups or people. Like uh, you make fun or have derogatory com comments about uh, transgender people or uh, women. Um, and so are you attending the event yourself? I am not. I don't think there's going to be space. If, if, like there, if there were space and you were able to attend, what would be the question that you asked Mr. Shapiro? I would love to attend. And so I think he has different ideas. I don't know all of his ideas, but I would like to know how he would propose to bring groups together. And uh, I guess my final question for you, so, you know, there's a debate in this country about free speech and what type of speech needs protection. So would you say hate speech needs to be protected? Um, I think at some point, no. Some point. I mean, it does need to be. She's no the, she, this lady is actually apparently Linda Hayward, an associate professor at the College of Veterinary Medicine. And I love the fact that she won't identify herself, even though she's wearing a pin that says that she's a member of the faculty, which is just amazing. So I do love that. How do I propose to bring people together? With true things. Okay, I think I've said this many times. If we can't unify around the truth, then we can't unify around anything. And that is not going to be fixed by us pretending that false things are true things. Okay, other things that I like today. Um, there's a California woman who's now identifying as a mermaid which is exciting. Uh, and I don't see what the problem is. I think that she should be able to pee in whichever aquarium she wants. Uh, her, uh, apparently, she is, uh, she's five foot four. She weighs 150 pounds. She has brown eyes and brown hair. Uh, and she was found walking down the middle of Middleton Road across from Eagle Spring Golf and Country Club. Um, and uh, she identified herself uh, as, she, she was walking the streets naked around 3 a.m. on Tuesday. Her hair was wet, and she told officers she'd been in the water. And she said that she was a mermaid. That was her excuse. So I guess that's two Daryl Hannah references in, in one show, actually, since I've actually referenced Splash. I guess that actually works. Okay, time for some things that I hate. So, a quick one. Apparently, Christian Bale is, is now going to be portraying Dick Cheney, which is just silly towns in an extreme way. So they say that Christian Bale, Steve Carell, and Amy Adams are set to star in a Dick Cheney biopic for Paramount. Okay, this is so tiresome. It's so played out. Enough already. I know that the left is obsessed with the Bush administration. It's Adam McKay, who's the guy who is behind the uh, the, the Wall Street film, Big Short. Big Short, with the same cast, right? And so he's basically doing the same cast, and he already made fun of Wall Street. Half of it was not really 
inaccurate representation of the, the, the what basically the problem with the big short is that it said true things about Wall Street, but it neglected the other half, which was the government was backing every play that Wall Street ever made in all of this, which is why they could actually do all the things that they did. But now they are going to to shoot something about Dick Cheney. Of course, Dick Cheney will be evil, you assume. Uh, Christian Bale, this just proves to me, I think, by the transit of property that Dick Cheney is actually Batman. So that's exciting. Um, but aside from that, is anybody clamoring for a biopic of Dick Cheney? Is anyone? It's so funny. It, who was president for the last eight years? Yeah, I, I missed it. it. It's so funny how time just skips that way, right? We went straight from Bush to Trump with nothing in between. Absolutely incredible. I mean, can you imagine if there had been anything noteworthy that had happened in the last eight years that was bad? Like, I mean, they definitely would have made a movie about that, probably, I'd think. Like, if, for example, let's say, let, let's say for example, that the, the, an administration had okayed a bunch of gun smuggling that got a border agent killed and then denied it in front of Congress and been held in contempt. That might have made the news, right? They might have been a movie. I mean, it's a pretty intriguing story. Oh, no, no, no. It, was, it was under Obama, so we can't talk about that. You know what else would have been like a fantastic story, probably, is, is the story of how all of the people in Iraq were basically abandoned by the American president. Right? I mean, that would have been probably a, a good story. I mean, they made the killing fields. That would have been a, a good story, probably. Oh, no, we can't do that either, right, because that, that, that was Obama. So that, that's the way that all of this works. It's really pathetic. Okay, uh, other things that I hate. So we didn't actually cut this clip, which is both fortunate for you and unfortunate for you. Uh, it is fortunate for you in that you don't have to see a pixelated, naked Lena Dunham, which is always a good thing. It's unfortunate because the footage is actually pretty incredible. There's a, there's a, a second, uh, there's an April 2nd episode, What Will We Do This Time About Adam, in which Lena Dunham's character talks about abortion. Uh, and this is, uh, apparently, she's talking about abortion with a gay guy. And the gay guy says to her that the baby is, quote, a parasite growing inside of you. He says, oh God, Hannah, this is going to be a real mind F for me if you want to get an abortion right now. I mean, I'll do it. I think there's about two doctors in America that do it at this stage in your pregnancy, but I'll find them. So it's a late-term abortion, apparently. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, it's just disgusting. A parasite growing inside of you. Do you know how evil it is to call a baby a parasite? Do you have any understanding of just how evil it is to suggest that a baby is a parasite? A baby is the greatest creation in the history of, of everything, okay? God's creation of babies is the most wondrous thing. It, as, as the father of two children, including an adorable three-and-a-half-year-old, and, a half year old and it, it's an adorable three-and-a-half-year-old girl, and the cutest 11-month-old baby boy that has ever existed, I brought him into the office. Guys, is my baby cute? My baby's extremely cute. Okay, he's a, he's a very good-looking baby. Um, babies are just... I mean, I, I, you're paid to say that he's cute also, so we'll, we'll take that with a grain of salt. But he actually is an extraordinarily cute baby. I never show pictures of my kids, both because it's not safe and also because I don't want to make everyone else envious of just how beautiful my children are. But babies are incredible. To call it a parasite is so disgusting. A parasite kills you. A parasite leeches off of you. Babies do not kill you or leech off of you. 17-year-old teenagers do, but babies do not. So the idea that you're, you're going to call it a parasite just so you can kill it, again, the dehumanization of the unborn just so that you can feel okay about murdering the unborn is truly despicable. Okay, time for a little bit of Bible talk. So instead of doing the Parsha this week, which is from the book of Leviticus, the Jewish, the, the portion of the Bible uh, is the Parsha. That's what we call it in Hebrew. It's from the book of Leviticus, and it's very detail-oriented about the sacrifices. Instead of doing that, I want to talk a little bit about the nature of Passover, because Passover starts next week. Uh, it starts on Monday night. Uh, my favorite holiday, love Passover. The two best are, are Passover and Sukkot. Sukkot is the Sukkot. It's the one where we uh, basically eat in booths outside with palm fronds and etc. Uh, Passover, everybody knows about. It's the more famous of the two. Probably the most famous Jewish holiday outside of Yom Kippur. Uh, Passover, obviously, about the Exodus. 
we do ever on on we do two we do this two straight nights. We do something called the Haggadah. The Haggadah is it means literally that we tell the story, and we tell the story of Passover complete with props uh, and activities for the kids. And the whole thing is designed to get children to ask questions about their history. It's a it's a model demonstration. If you ever go to a seder, uh, which means order, if you go to a seder then you will be able to see how the Haggadah should model how teaching is done because the Haggadah relates and then it gives commentary and then it has songs and it has and it has kind of chants and and you and again there's props that like in the Sephardic community there's part of it where people go around lifting the matzah as though the, the matzah is bricks. I mean it's that sort of thing and the whole thing is designed to get the children involved, to have the children ask questions. Um, this is the difference between the secular death-centered culture of Lena Dunham and the Jewish culture, which is all about life, preservation of it, and teaching of children about their own history. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, I think that the essence of Passover is is really missed by many people. The essence of Passover is not the Exodus, actually. The essence of Passover is the service to God. So what makes the Exodus important is not just the release of the Jewish people from Egypt and the and the advent of freedom. It is the fact that they went out in order to serve God. That was the point. The reason that it's called Passover and not, for example, Exodus, you could call the holiday Exodus. The reason it's called Passover is because God passed over the houses of the Jewish people. But Passover, it's really interesting. Passover in English is about God passing over the, the houses of, of the Jewish people because the Jewish people had marked their houses with, with blood uh, in order to, and with the blood of lambs uh, because the Egyptians worshipped lambs. We basically said, your God is not a God and, and put blood on the doorpost. The idea was that God then ignored those houses when he was killing the firstborn at the very end of the ten plagues. The reason that it's called Passover in Hebrew is because God was was demonstrating and not called Exodus is because God was was demonstrating that the relationship between Israel and, and God is a symbiotic one, that basically the Jews have to fulfill obligations to God, and that's why God holds them dear to his heart. It's actually called Pesach in, in Hebrew. Pesach is a, a sacrificing. It, it, it doesn't actually mean Passover. It means the sacrifice. It's actually called the, the Paschal sacrifice, the Pesach sacrifice, uh, and that was the sacrifice of that lamb. That was the first act of faith that the Jewish people had to do as a community before leaving Egypt, and that's what we remember, is that even in the direst circumstances, we are obligated to follow the word of God even when it doesn't look good. It's easy to look back and celebrate the exodus and the freedom, but that's celebrating the wrong thing. We are actually celebrating two things. God taking the Jews, the Jewish people, us out of Egypt, and God celebrating the fact that the Jewish people were willing to put their own lives on the line in order to glorify him, by doing, I mean, imagine for a second that you were living in a pagan society where you took the pagan god, slaughtered it, and put its blood on your doorpost. Pretty risky move. That's what the Jews did, and that's what God is celebrating. That's why we call it Passover. And there's a phrase in the Haggadah where it talks about, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord our God took us out with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. If the Holy One, blessed be he, had not taken our fathers out of Egypt, we, our children, and our children's children would have remained enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. That's technically not true, right? This is how we begin the Passover Seder. That's technically not true because obviously the Pharaoh's Egypt doesn't exist anymore and there are multiple movements of the Jewish people. So what does it mean that we all would have remained slaves to Egypt and Pharaoh, uh, to, to Pharaoh in Egypt? It doesn't mean that we literally would have remained Pharaoh slaves in Egypt. It, it means that we would have remained slaves to a paganistic ideology that does not recognize obligation to God. That's what it means. And that's what the Exodus was all about. It's not just about freedom. It's also about the other side of the coin, obligation. Okay, so we are, uh, you know, Passover is coming up and tomorrow is the mailbag. So a lot of exciting things happening. Be there or be square tomorrow. This is the Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. 
Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 